Welcome back to Solomon's Knot, finding truth and wisdom in an information age. Thank you for your patience since our last recording, but I've been enjoying engaging with one student in particular that really sparked conversation about whether or not God or the Bible can be trusted. The Christian Bible has historically attempted to answer questions at the heart level, whether from issues of morality, truth, and the way that we should conduct our lives according to a fixed standard of ethical, moral, and spiritual consequence. Today's guest is a student of chemical engineering from North Carolina State University with a keen intellect and interest in issues involving truth in today's culture. So without further delay, let's get started with the show. So my name's Dylan. I'm studying chemical engineering here at NC State. Had a good time this summer just doing a co-op, doing some good work rotation, and I'm here to kind of just have a discussion, I guess. Great. What is it about science or engineering, biochem, that you find interesting? Why that field and what do you hope to contribute with that field? So chemical engineering I chose because I knew I wanted to do something in the realm of engineering. My father works in aerospace engineering and there's a lot of benefit in having an engineer's mindset, I would say. Being able to approach problems in a systematic matter and because I really enjoyed freshman chemistry, I enjoyed understanding on a fundamental level what makes things behave in the natural world. Just kind of moving into more of the discussion and we had mentioned some themes earlier scientific theory, intelligent design, moral versus natural law. I think we, we covered a few different topics in our previous discussion on the voices segment. In terms of the conversation itself I think morals and ethics kind of stuck out a little bit in the culture. So how do ethics and morals inform your decision making? I understand ethics and morals to be process by which you make decisions. What informs you is good or bad in a personal sense. So what has informed you as to what is good or bad will help inform you on your decision making. Naturally, you want to do things that are good and you want to avoid things that are bad. Maybe to take a step further into what is the foundation of your morals and ethics? Like if you were going to start with maybe your core beliefs, how do your core beliefs about maybe your view of the world or the view of right and wrong inform your morals and ethics and where does that come from? For me, it comes from my life experience. I try to make decisions that I think will maximize the benefit to my own life. And what that means varies on the situation, obviously. My focus tends to shift towards what can I do that maximizes positive outcome. I'm challenged by the fact that can we ever really be who we are without changing ourselves in some ways? And we, we mirror inherently in society because socially it's easier to get along with people who you can relate to. You change in different social situations. That's acceptable. That's social. But changing how you behave is natural. You touch on a good point though. Like we're relational creatures. Like we need to have interaction and relation and vulnerability. And would you say that's more of a survival instinct or is that something Something that's ingrained and built into us almost as a part of our identity. We need to feel connected to people or connected to something existential, possibly the need to be known. People are inherently social creatures. We're social creatures by design, by evolution. We work together in groups. We're cooperative animals. And over millennia, that adds up. It informs how you would want to behave, especially if you're raised by people who, if they've been successful cooperatively, you would learn to be successful. 
cooperatively. If human beings could work cooperatively, why is it so difficult for everyone just to come together and work together? What is it about the human heart that just can't reconcile sometimes to its neighbor? The simplest one-word answer I can give to that is probably tribalism, which is, I, I would defer to a cultural anthropologist or a sociologist to elaborate more on this. I would imagine there is a cap going back to perhaps hunter-gatherer societies. There's probably a limit to how many people you can sustain as a wandering group. And of course that expands, that contracts with different living situations throughout history. And if you are very comfortable with your own raised identity, which you were raised in, and you see something as other or different, you would be suspicious because you maybe don't identify with them in the same way that you would identify with your family group. It's just something that's hard to overcome with how we have organized ourselves thus far in history. Yeah, that's a good point, good observations. What can we agree on, whether it's ethics or morals, worldview? Is it that all human beings at the core fundamental basis need to have an idea or an understanding of where they came from, like a human origin story, or like collectively, where did the planet come from, the cosmos, how were they formed? Because we understand through science and we understand through physics and other things that we've discovered that there is consistency in the creation as we know it. Do we owe it to ourselves to really discover why that is the case or do we just simply accept it as a reality and try to figure out how to address the heart level issues in society? Okay, let me start with um, your first question. If I understand your first question, it would be, is there an inherent desire in humanity to understand why we're here? And, and I would say that yes, as conscious beings, so far as we can tell, we're kind of unique and being able to observe our own existence, how we came into being, whatnot. A lot of like the bulk of human history as we define humans has just been people existing. I'm going to answer this question as if it was a religious question. Um, you see a lot of organized religions come into being once you have established landed agricultural societies where there was a surplus of food and there was enough people around to justify people performing more ritualistic tasks. I would argue that it became beneficial in society in large-scale societies to keep people organized via these basic questions, wondering how we came into being, what we're meant to do, and what life after death would look like. Because those are things that everyone can relate to as conscious beings. I think the caste system in India would be the most long-lived example, where people's entire positions in life were defined by their place of birth for religious reasons. To answer your second question, I, I would like you to reiterate your sure. second question. If so I, I know understand. my life has intrinsic meaning, not just based on what governments or laws will say every human has a right to justice or every human has a right to health care depending on where you live in the world the right to basic needs and where does that come from because not every culture accepts that like in the caste system some ethnic cultures or caste get to receive benefits that others don't I've seen that in other places in the world where there's separation of class based on your hegemon or based on whatever tribe that you're from for a number of reasons but in a universal sense if i know my life has value and worth and dignity then regardless of my skin color, gender, race, even religious preferences, who's it to say that someone else can place a separate set of value on my life and then enforce that through lethal violence or government-imposed imprisonment or incarceration? It happens in China, it happens in other places in the world where people are arrested essentially for speaking for freedom and speaking up for what they believe is right, not based on a government standard, but based on, as Martin Luther and other people have said, appealing to their conscience, my conscience won't allow me to 
accept the decision that human governments and human kings are imposing because it, it doesn't meet an ultimate higher standard of ethic or morality that is accepted as human beings, that we should have the right to, as you've mentioned in previous conversation, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, those inalienable rights. So if I know my life has meaning, doesn't that inform the way that I interact with other people in the world? And should other people accept that? I think that it would certainly inform the way that you interact. But I, I want to make this point. How do you know that your life as a conscious being has inherent value? I would say two reasons. One, because if I'm appealing to an objective standard of truth, if I'm going to appeal to the Ten Commandments, if I'm going to appeal to a rigid ethic or morality, if I was even going to go back to the Greeks from a an ethical or moral standpoint is right or true or just, it ultimately has to meet a very specific set of criteria. Does this have logical consistency, empirical adequacy? Is it something that is going to basically survive the test of time? So if I say, hey, it is wrong to kill someone. It is wrong to violate a child. Certain things that across broad cultures, there is this thing kind of written on our heart, this moral compass that says, hey, th there's something wrong here. So that's one thing. So an historically demonstrated set of standards that has proven its weight over many millennia in which societies even today, human governments even today accept as truth. The second thing I'd say is how I relate to other human beings. It's one thing to say, I'm gonna live the way I want to without harming my neighbor, but at some point that's going to cross and it's going to affect my neighbor. And so what binds that together? Well, my neighbor and I have to also both agree on a shared set of standards and beliefs. And while we may not agree from various political or ideological or religious basis, we have to both agree to a certain set of natural standards. And whether we realize it or not, that has to be imprinted on us from somewhere. So what would your primary argument be for the source of that imprintation? A lot of people cite their religious belief for their sense of morality. There's a good reason to believe that the idea of God or religious practices evolved from morality and not the other way around. Universally, across the world, murder is illegal. Theft is illegal. In a general sense, it's on the laws. Pedophilia is bad. These general senses that you could say, like, it's in religious texts, that must be the basis. I would argue that societies prior to religion agreed that this was bad and enshrined it within their religion as a means of authority. It's like, well, you don't just have to take our word for it as people. It's our religious custom as a way of lending credence to what they believed. This was a topic that was discussed by Plato in some of his earlier writings, where it's like, how do you know what is good or bad? He, he was having a conversation with a young man at the time, and the young man said, whatever the gods decree is good or bad. They're polytheistic, the Greeks, whatever the gods decree is good or bad. Well, how do the gods know what's good or bad? And if the answer is that the gods can recognize something as good, there must be something about it that is inherently good beyond what the gods decree. It's something that comes before them that they can just recognize. So what comes before them? I don't know. <laughs> and that and that and that was the question that Plato was like the young man couldn't answer. Well, it's like if the gods are deciding what's good, let me pose this question: If the Ten Commandments did not have "Thou shalt not kill" written in it, would it be okay to murder? If I'm going to look at objectively the Ten Commandments, and I could say a Creator God gives specific instructions, and in one sense it's a set of moral guidelines, like you should not kill, you should honor your father and mother. If you never heard the message of the gospel, the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, and about the impact that made on humanity on the fact that we have now a responsibility to recognize the deity incarnate objectively view what his message was the testimony of the people that spoke it because they weren't saying hey i heard about this guy no they were saying we actually saw this and we're opening up our testimony for criticism and the preponderance and the weight of that testimony is significant and substantial i'll just say this a lot of the commandments particularly the first three talk about god's sovereignty 
he his need for man to not create counterfeit forms of what is considered to be supreme and ultimate. You can't make a lesser god of me because I created all things. And to answer your question earlier, all these gods that Plato and some of these other sophists were referring to, why aren't those gods supreme and imminent today? Why did they seem to last for antiquity, but today they're no longer held in such prominence, but yet the message of Jesus Christ seems to continue to grow and expand for over 2,000 years? Well, my question what answers that? My, my question was one of, had God not included in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill, would it be okay to murder? Not morally good, not morally bad, because as it is now, you would argue it's morally bad, it's in the Ten Commandments, it's there. But if it weren't there, would it be okay to murder? You can even go back further in time if we're using the biblical accounts, and obviously people had existed long before that. I believe in the Hittite culture and some of the other Mesopotamian cultures of that time, it wasn't like there wasn't justice before then. And even in the Word, in Genesis, the first children born, Cain and Abel, there was a murder and there was a consequence for that murder. God cursed Cain and he separated him from the original family and he had to spend his time in wandering, but there was a consequence. We knew about a consequence long before God gave that in a verbal form. Moses himself killed someone and yet God still sought it fit to use him in incredible ways. The Jewish people under the command of Joshua, under the command of other leaders, Gideon, some of the judges. Oh, the genocide of the people of the lands of Canaan. So in some of those cases, from one vantage point, it looks that way. It looks like that God is allowing the Jewish people to wipe out entire races of people. What was the reasoning? Some of them were offering up child sacrifice, which we can even consider today as morally wrong. I do recall God demanding Abraham sacrifice Isaac. Abraham knew the promise of God, and he knew that God ultimately would fulfill his promise. And so by faith, he offers up Isaac. And we know Isaac was old enough to know he had the ability to physically get out of being bound. We do see God taking people to a level that they didn't believe that they can go to. But here's interesting though, and this is what I would argue is because of the effect of our fallen nature, because of a decision made by our great, 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 great ancestors to eat of the tree. And that sounds very primitive and archaic. It sounds like, well, it can't be that simple, but it actually does adequately demonstrate what happens when we turn away from a state of harmony with a higher ethic. I just want to speak more on a source of morality because my argument has been more recently that morality didn't come from religion inherently. I would argue that religion became entwined with morality as a way of lending credence to different people's perhaps moral beliefs. And over time, with mass adoption in a cultural sense and linking religion and morality intrinsically, it's easier to assume that one cannot exist without the other and that because religion is more of the institutional practice that morality must be derived from it. One can't beget the other because human beings ultimately will fail. I'm going to go back to our earlier conversation about do societies need those higher forms of morals or ethics from whether a religious or a philosophical context, some kind of objective standard, whether it's the Ten Commandments. Other civilizations have tried to create idealistic utopian models of self-governance and have failed constantly. Communism in recent centuries has failed at doing this to strip away God and strip away a higher sense or, or historical sense of morals. And it's actually defaulted into genocide or defaulted into inhumane practices. If you deduce it all down, one is ultimately a man-centered, self-derived sense of justice, which has to borrow those ideals from something external to their own creative faculty. My point that I guess I'm trying to get at with my original question of if God sanctioned murder, would murder be good? Morally good. My 
argument is no, it would not be. He can't do something that violates his word. Well, if he can't do something that violates what he said before, he can't be all-powerful, I would argue. If God is ultimately supreme and sovereign, there is actually reason for what we would consider moral injustice. As a human, I sometimes have trouble reconciling that. I've seen failure and upset and disappointment in my life that feels wrong. I just recently had dinner with friends and they had a miscarriage when they were young. Science may say, well, you know, the genetics and a bunch of other things factored into that. But from a grieving mother, that seems like there's no plausible explanation. How could a good God allow that to happen? But what she'd use that story as an example to maybe someone else going through that, like, hey, I've been through it too and you can actually overcome this and God is still good. He still loves you. And you know what? They've had two children since then. So it wasn't a loss. It was something that may have helped her get through with the perspective of God that to an outsider may seem wrong. I want to take a moment to direct you to some various resources that can equip both the student, campus minister, as well as anyone interested in conversations involving truth, reality, and the culture that we exist in. You can go to forcampus.org to review top questions involving God's existence, truth, the Bible, including issues in the culture, whether it's from a gender, cultural, or scientific standpoint. Now, let's get back to the discussion. You mentioned you, you've talked about Moses, you've talked about Joshua. I'm presuming that you would declare that the Exodus is a historical fact. When would you say that happened? It depends on where you start from. It can the go back. The typical answer I hear is about 1500 BC. The departure of Moses and his followers from Egypt under Ramses II is typically placed around between 1800 and 1500 BCE by apologetic scholars. Okay. How many Jews in your research or from your apologetic classes would you say were participating in the Exodus? What the word says that they were a great nation. Some may say in the hundreds of thousands, potentially millions. So the problem with that is there's not any archaeological evidence of that number of Jews existing in Egypt in that period of history. If we're talking about archaeology, then we also have to talk about what is the worldview of those archaeologists. You're accusing massive amounts of historical analysis and people, irregardless of their religious beliefs, throwing away the greatest historical contribution to history as we know it for the sake of what exactly? It depends on your research, there's plenty of researchers that have found evidence for the sites of not only Mount Sinai, the ability for that surrounding region to hold worship, including the tabernacle and all the things for that amount of people. You do have records, and there's documentaries on this stuff. Exodus decoded, he wrote, he did a few documentaries, and he actually interviews researchers from different vantage points, some Christian, some secular. In my research prior to this, there's not significant evidence to suggest that Jews ever outnumbered the Egyptians in the period of Ramses II. There's not pottery, there's not pieces of cloth or any sort of thing. If you have millions of people in a settled establishment for hundreds of years as they're parts of enslaved groups, there's evidence of them left behind. We we know this to be true. Well, here's the thing is, if the Egyptians had a significant loss of their military force, including an event where a subservient nation of people had actually left them, departed from them and through miraculous means, do you think that that predominant nation would record that? But here's what you see in the, the biblical accounts is you see the nation's failings, moral failings, they're good kings and bad kings, they're almost annihilation as a people for what they're doing against their own creator. You don't see that broadly in other cultures. You see our victories, you see our kings that were mighty leaders. And so it's suggested to say that a nation that would record this evidence or wouldn't would probably go to great lengths to hide that information. There have been archeological discoveries of busts with certain traditions of those people and kings and they would mention the Israelite people or a king that has qualities, whether it's 
David. And so, I mean, look, I'm not an expert in this area. I understand. But I, do, I do know that there's just as much plausible evidence and archaeological finds to support some of these people. We know Ramses II existed. We found his tomb with his name and his body preserved. We, we know who he was. And pharaohs love to self-aggrandize, particularly after their death. But what we also found was not just the writings in his tomb of what he did in his life. There was recorded documentation from his vassal states. The story of the Exodus, the portion with the crossing of the Red Sea, the splitting of the Red Sea. Ramses had to lose his entire army, but there's no historical reason to suggest that he did. We know that Egypt remained in control of the Levant and most of Northern Arabia for the majority of that portion of history until the emergence of Hittite cultures Northern, but that's hundreds of years away. There's a very easy trap to fall into when studying historically, and it's called historical shrinkage. There's other more academic words for it, but when looking back on large periods of history, it's easy to say that like, oh geez, the Jews left and Egypt fell. 400 years passed. The entirety of American history, close to 250 years now, fits snugly within the period of Roman history that's referred to as the decline. And Egyptian history is even more ancient and prolonged. I would argue that people living what would come to be Israel at the time, who identified as Hebrew peoples, who wanted a story about their people. It's easy to look at Egypt, the dominant power in the region, and say, we beat those guys 400 years ago. And we did it through our God who has chosen us. And, and I don't Why wouldn't they just say that, though? Why did they have to talk about all the times they screwed up and all the times their leaders bailed on them? The fact that, like, God was even hard on the people. Like, why such specificity? 40 chapters of sometimes just like, gosh, like, you guys keep screwing up. You wouldn't write that in a champion story. You wouldn't write all that specificity. A pillar of cloud by day and a fire by night and the tabernacle and all these intricacies. Why would you do that? If you want to impose, I'm going to say, the fear of God, God and people to give them a reason to stay in line, you would write about that. And I know that the Dead Sea Scrolls and there are many, many portions of the Old Testament which were recorded throughout antiquity, but a lot of it was not recorded for a very, very long time. I don't know the specific chapters which maybe were inscribed later in history with the rising of the New Testament. I, I'm dubious as to how close to Jesus's death the New Testament was written. Some accounts say that it was written 20 years after his death, some say 200 years after his death. It is more accurate in a, I'm going to say, historical sense in the Old Testament, but a lot of its claims of miracles and miraculous happenings are, I have to be skeptical of them because they are being made to claim the existence of a God. Is this correct? The entrance of a messianic figure is the most historical and prophetic promise given by God to the people and Jesus perfectly fulfills. And here's interesting. If we're going to talk about evidence, they find a stone with Pontius Pilate's name on it. That's a significant historical figure of that time. They find tons of things that have matched biblical historical events, the testimony of the people, historians like Josephus and others that have said, yeah, these people actually had leaders and some of these people were crucified believing what had happened. It's, it's very substantial. It's pretty indisputable that these people existed. I'm not going to contend the birth of Jesus of Nazareth as he existed, but crucifixion was a common practice for the execution of heretics and of pirates in the Roman world. If you were a pirate, you were crucified along the coast to dissuade other pirates from raiding ships. It was fairly common practice. That didn't exist back in the day, so how did the prophets of old predict that, that he would be hung on a tree? Well, he wasn't hung on a tree. He was suspended from planks of wood. The language in the imagery, another one would be he was pierced for our transgressions. I'm pretty sure a very common means of murder in that time of day was piercing. It's easy to look back on claims that were made or historical things that have happened. People do this with Nostradamus all the time. They, they cherry pick the particular prophecies that he made and impose 
looking back, things that have happened nowadays. Well, that's very easy to do. wrong about some of those predictions? If I said right now there will be a war in the next 100 years, I feel very confident in my abilities to have just made a prediction. Would you be willing to put your life on it? Yes. Really? If I were to say there is going to be a war in 100 years... Well, you're not going to be alive then, right? Exactly. But, but if you make it at that time, and those things actually come to pass in your time, and you're not right about it, Daniel prophesied about events happening in his life. Joseph prophesied about famines that was given to him through divine revelation and vision. People have made prophecies that have actually occurred in their lifetimes. If they were wrong, we wouldn't hear about them. If you are going to make the claim that God is an objective source of morality, you should be able to display beyond reasonable doubt that he exists, which I do not believe that the Bible does adequately. And I would propose that there are healthy alternatives to finding morality in life without needing to appeal to a god. Sam Harris is a popular, well-spoken individual. He proposes a form of objective morality that is independent of God, which is dependent on maximizing goodness, which sounds very idealistic, and it is inherently. We understand from our personal experience things that are good or bad. Pain is bad. I would say objectively. By uh, what standard, though? Exactly. By what standard? That, that's where all of these run into conflict. I think it's more reasonable to say that I don't need to prove a being exists that gives me my sense of morality. I just think that it's more reasonable to me to understand that I would have an obligation hmm. to do things that this are good is... and not do things that are bad. And this is a discussion that I leave up to ethicists as to how to make ought claims from right or wrong statements. That's what you hit the nail on the head. And really the issue at the end of the day is if God is real and Jesus is the incarnate form of God, it ultimately comes down to will we actually submit to the teaching? If that was sufficient for millennia and that even established nations like the ones we live in now with the laws that we have, and I would argue to say we flourished because of that. There's a couple of points that I just want to make about the source of morality or the we, we talked at the beginning of the conversation about perhaps like is, in, is the Christian morality bad? No, I don't think inherently. But based on a standard, if we were going to create a standard of morality, could we agree that that is pretty dang sufficient? Because if we actually had to create our own system of morality, you're not going to be able to appease everyone equitably. Well, are you claiming that the Christian morality is an objective morality? Yes. Okay. But and that's, that's yet, my... That's, that, that, is, yeah. that is your perspective. Right. But I was having a discussion about someone with uh, Levitical law. That's very antiquated. If you're going to argue Christian morality is an objective form of morality, uh, where do you you draw the line and if you're drawing the line anywhere you have to make a subjective claim of like well this is what i believe we see from the beginning of the fall god recognizing the need for order and justice he gave us a choice if it wasn't a choice he wouldn't be a god worth serving i would argue it wasn't a choice if you're reading genesis as written adam and eve if god is omniscient knows everything he made eve knowing that she would be tempted and if he's omniscient he would have had to know her choice and yet he made her in a way that would make her be sinful did she have a choice I I would say she did because she didn't have to believe a lie over truth. But she was made that way. She was made in a way where she would. But she was made with the freedom to choose, not with the predetermined choice. The outcome is predetermined. Well, if the outcome is predetermined, her choice must be as well. If the choice is the only thing but that leads to that outcome. Her conscience doesn't know that. We might be engaging in conversation that could have generational impacts, not just for us, but for the culture around us, our own families one day. So what explains 
means the fact that two people can come to a table talking about God or about our own creation. What binds us together in this conversation? And yet at the same time, if it is predetermined, then that same choice of I could either walk away from my faith, which I don't believe I can do. I think that the Holy Spirit is going to keep me grounded in faith. What allows us to choose whether we believe or don't believe? What governs our ability to choose? Is it a conscience? Is it limited free will? My argument is the fact that you have the ability to choose means that God loves you enough to give you the opportunity to draw close to him and reject him. My issue is then you still must demonstrate that God exists. I kind of fallen out of favor with believing in a God at some point in high school. Recognizing that I didn't have answers to some important questions in life was kind of what drove me to find meaning. That began with what I was most familiar with, the sense of Christian morality. That's what I grew up around. But again, I couldn't reconcile the contradictions by the description of the Christian God. It's the hypocrisy within its practices from a church level. And so I began looking elsewhere. And one writer who I found I particularly enjoy is Jean-Paul Sartre. A quote that kind of introduced me to his readings came from him that goes, we live our lives looking for authority in one form or another. And so often we go through our lives meeting our authorities and discovering that every one of our authorities is fake. Albert Camus is another good French author who I enjoyed reading from. And one of his more, I guess, impactful theses came from the myth of Sisyphus and from The Stranger. The Stranger is a renowned book, the Nobel winning prize. It outlines Camus' description of the absurd. The absurd to him is the reality of a man shouting for answers in uncaring universe. We want answers. We want to know why. We want to know that there is a meaning to it all and we cry into the void and are answered by nothing. Camus, in a later writing, The Myth of Sisyphus. Sisyphus was a Greek man who managed to upset the gods, which happens very frequently. They were very stubborn. But he upset them because he outsmarted them on one too many occasions. But his punishment in the underworld is considered particularly cruel. The famous one of rolling a boulder up a hill only for every time he reaches the top for the boulder to roll back down. And he must start over and roll the boulder up the hill is his punishment for all eternity. As we push that rock up a hill is us trying to find meaning in the world and in the universe and in how we understand it. And if you encounter a hard question you can't answer and it rolls back to the bottom, he wrote, you must imagine Sisyphus greeting his challenge with a smile that we have a responsibility to ourselves personally to find meaning in an otherwise meaningless world. Not meaningless in that what we do doesn't matter, but that it doesn't have an inscribed meaning. We have an obligation to make meaning for ourselves. One of the newest features of forecampus.org is our brand new training series. We interview seasoned evangelists, campus ministers, and inspiring leaders within the faith to present practical ways that you can minister to students within your local colleges or community. You can go to forecampus.org training to review those videos as well as gaining more resources through this ministry. Based upon research, based upon other other people's experience, my own experience, people during the, whether they're Old Testament reporting that they saw these miraculous events or even New Testament, seeing Jesus walk on water, perform healings, based on the fact there were so many witnesses, based on the fact that there's testimony from people that didn't have any weight at the time, women, people of various classes. And yet I would argue as someone who has been through his own journey from one side of that perspective to another, it wasn't a well-grounded 
grounded argument that led me there. It was something existential. And yet in that encounter, multiple other encounters, not just by my testimony, but other people that align with the word in the physical embodiment of the Christian church. And here's the thing is the gift. Not everyone that's going to seek him, even though the word says search and you'll find, but not everyone on that journey is going to have that level of encounter. And I'd argue this. You like ice cream? Depends on the ice cream. What do you like? What's your favorite ice cream? I really, uh, chocolate. I like coffee ice cream, man. I don't know why people don't like Coffee's it. good. Coffee ice cream is really good. But here's the thing is, for someone that's never had ice cream before, how do you explain that? And you could tell about they look, it's like this. It's like that. It's sweet. You can use language in their culture to explain. You can even try something. It tastes exactly like this. I and mean, I'll give you an example. I just heard this recently. Like for someone, uh, was a message pastor shared. He's like his kids, you know, he's a grandpa now. He's like, they're always so health conscious about what they feed their kids. But my grandkids, like they don't know this, but they had ice cream for the first time with me. You know, he's a really good grandpa. But when the face they make when they eat ice cream for the first time, they'll never be able to forget that. But explaining to someone that's never had ice cream, what it tastes like, you can use all the evidence you want. You could say, hey, you could buy it at this place. It's made here, it's from here, it tastes this way. But until you've actually tasted it, that person is not going to have a context. And I think the way that we're supposed to receive Christ, some people are going to receive it on faith that what is said is true. And I don't think it's because they're not searching long enough and hard enough. And that's how I think people can literally be following their whole life and walk away because they're like, I just never had that personal encounter. I know what it tastes like. I've been in God's presence and I recognize it's not just a feeling. It's a reality. It's a person. It doesn't mean that you're excluded. It doesn't mean that the evidence can still look at stuff in scripture and be suspect of it. But what I've discovered is that when I know he's a person and I have the appropriate lens to view scripture, because you need to have the Holy Spirit to look at something written by the Spirit. Otherwise, it kind of sometimes doesn't make sense. But when you have the Spirit and it's Spirit to Spirit, it makes sense. And that's a hard truth for people that just really need grounded, rational, reason argument. But the Bible is also very reasonable. It makes claims that even from agnostic and atheistic scholars who really actually commit the research, they come to some significant similar conclusions. You know what? Jesus was a real person. If we have to recognize he's a historical figure, then we have to examine what was said about him. We know Jesus was, we do We do have substantial sure. evidence to say that sure. Jesus was a real person. Do you think you could describe him? I would use the word, but he had an appearance that was not attractive. He was probably Middle Eastern or Arab looking, darker in complexion, Hebrew. I'm thinking like the movie Avatar, like looks like an avatar, but something's a little different. I like the there are two descriptions of Jesus in the Bible. He was a baby and then he rode into town as a man. Yeah, we do miss parts of him in his teenage years and other the, parts, yeah. The, the typical portrayal of Jesus as a fair-skinned man with chestnut hair, that comes from a falsified document from a Catholic preacher in Antioch in around 1100s when they wanted to make a stained glass mural of Jesus in the description. Jesus and well, yeah, so yeah. they falsified what was meant to be a, a Roman arrest warrant for him with his physical description. And this is just something that I find tangentially historically interesting. I don't judge people for faith. I like your analogy to, well, you can't, you can't taste, you, you, how do you describe ice cream? I don't have issue with people claiming to have monumental personal experiences and choosing to live their lives as informed by those personal experiences. That's how I live my life. I said at the beginning that I make moral and ethical decisions based on my learned experience, but my learned experience does not lead me to a creator God. My suspicion of it is not in a haughty kind of overly intellectualizing, well, you're just 
emotionally invested in this character. I don't judge people for having emotional investments in things that they were raised with. Those are very impactful and developmental periods of their lives, but they're proscriptive of how I should behave, how I should act, how I should live my life. And in doing so, that feels like my freedom is being confiscated, my freedom to act. And if I don't submit to such treatment, then I'm judged by other people. I know that I'm judged by other Christians. I'm told so. And it's not, I don't want to accuse them of being malicious because I know that they try to come from a genuine place if they care about what they think is my salvation. But I don't think it's fair to assume that because I believe differently, I must be damned. I don't make the same assumption of you or other people who share Christian values. My criticism then of the Christian faith comes from, I would like to be convinced. So you're upset, not that people are sharing but that you don't feel that they have reasoned, defensible argument to substantiate the truth claims of the Bible. You talk about ice cream. You like coffee ice cream. You love coffee ice cream. Someone who is a Muslim, a devout Muslim, or Hindu, or other various denominations of faith. If you've never had their favorite ice cream flavor, do you know coffee's your favorite? How do you know that you just haven't had your favorite flavor of ice cream? The thought process that I came to with analyzing my own ethics and morality is one that, like I said at the beginning, is twofold. I have my personal morality, how I behave with decisions that impact exclusively me, or as close to exclusively me as can be said, and then how I behave when my actions have consequences for other people. And that's informed by my lived experience, that the consequences my actions may have from the choices that I'm given, I think I have an obligation to do what could be good and to avoid doing what may be bad. How I personally break that down is much easier to do than saying like society-wide objective morality should be adhered to. I think this is a good point because you've mentioned this a few times. Is your chief end to be a good person? Person. My chief end is to live a meaningful life, which I think in, in, inscribes being a good person. Right. But, and this is where I'm going to speak biblically. Our chief end is to glorify God, because if we cannot answer where we came from as human beings, independent of a creator God, and we cannot come to the table collectively on what is considered to be a person's worth. What I'm saying in the broadest sense is if my ultimate aim in life is to be a good person, and I'm not saying it's the wrong thing. If we're going based on a standard of doing good deeds and righteous deeds, and but here's the thing is I don't don't have to live under a yoke of having to earn my own moral salvation or my own sense of doing righteous acts. That's what the difference between the Christian God, especially in how Jesus modeled his life, forgiving sinners, God himself forgiving murderers and using those people to liberate other people. When it comes to the person of Jesus, not producing any sin, any fault, any blame, any issue, his life, the way it has been written, the way it's been demonstrated, he lived righteously under his own commandment and authority and lordship. And it's not just his own personal, I'm going to do my own right thing. It's historically established law from the beginning of creation. And that's a hard standpoint, but that's why he can tell people it's my way or the highway because I'm living it perfectly. It's almost like I'm calling you to a higher way to live forgiving your enemies. Why would I want to forgive someone that wants to kill me? If someone wants to take me one mile, why well, go two? Why should I take off the shirt of my back? That doesn't make sense from a moral standpoint. I have to protect myself if I want to take care of my neighbor. But he's calling us to die to ourselves. He commends people that are willing to actually go on faith to live a higher ethic, one where they don't have to earn it. It's actually already been done for them at the cross. And that's what's radical. I'm never going to earn my own righteousness. And therefore, I'm not a slave to my own righteousness and my own moral deeds. Does that mean I'm going to kill my neighbor and know that I'm absolved of it? No. 
well, but it means that I don't have to live underneath the weight and judgment of that. Yes, I can say I'm covered by the blood of Jesus and I'm forgiven of my sins and my moral indiscretions, but I'm also expected to live a life that's not myself. It's not self-focused. It's for his glory. You can look back on your life and have regrets. And I think that regrets that you have for deeds that you committed or did not commit to enough would be your own form of torment for failure in your life. I want to be able to accept responsibility for decisions that I make. And in that, I find great freedom in being able to say, I have made my life what it is. I heard a quote, and I was going to say you may find it somewhat abhorrent, but it's a quote that goes, any God that would demand every aspect of your life from you, how you live it, who you live it with, and how you should behave till you die is no better than a God of death. But he doesn't demand it, he, he desires it. It's different. One is subjugation and slavery, another but if is, he has is worship. Made me, as I am to be, as he knows I will be, as a God who is all-powerful and omniscient, he's made the choice for me. He knows how I'll behave, and he made me in such a way that I will behave like he would, or how he would see me to. I don't know that a God like that is worth worship for me, personally. If he desires love and affection, by all means, make people who would share in your love and affection. This is talked about in the, the graphic novel Preacher, which I mentioned it before. And I, I have to I, find a copy of it somewhere. I doubt your listeners would enjoy it very much. No, know uh, that. It, Most of my listeners are your age. <laughs> uh, well, they, they might enjoy it. If you yeah. can find a copy of Preacher, do it. I'll find it. I'll, I'll um, post a link on the show notes. The thrusting conflict of the story is God has abandoned creation. And the story follows Jesse Custer, a preacher, trying to find God to answer for the suffering of his creation. That's the story. And the final chapter is God talking to a saint about why he abandoned his creation, and furthermore, why he, having returned to heaven, permits suffering. And this is explored earlier on in the series in a chapter called How I Learned to Love the Lord, where Jesse, the main character, explains how he came to know God through suffering, imposed on him by other people for the sake of him learning what they thought was a good lesson. He came to know God in that, to him, God was who you turned to when you didn't have anything left, when you wanted to be loved and you wanted to give that love to something that you felt would reciprocate. And when God is having his discussion with a saint, the saint berates him, saying that his creation may have outgrown him. And that God responds by saying, I've done everything I could for them. It had to be this way. And I desire my creation to want to live without me so that they eventually return to me. It's, it's an interesting representation of God. I think it's a little ambitious for us to say that we could attain to God-like status in the sense of I can know all things omnisciently. I would never make that claim. But that essentially is what we could do. The type of thinking is that I don't need to be dependent upon creator God because I want to come to the conclusion that I can create myself and I can determine the boundaries and the path that I have ahead of me. Like, you couldn't stop me from crossing your path with what I believe. I actually really felt convicted, like, listen, not just you, but people are saying about God or about what they see in the culture, about what, what they do believe. And what I realize is that they have a problem with a God that people are describing as loving and good and gracious. And yet when you look in the Bible, you see things that seem like contradictions, morality-based decisions of a creator God that seems to have negative and unfair 
dire consequences. And yet, if you actually just understand that God's ultimate goal and purpose isn't to make you happy, which some churches unfortunately delve into, it's called prosperity gospel, or righting every wrong, like social justice movements, which is happening its way in our church too. Why are we having issues with social justice? We already know there's only one God deserves our ultimate worship and that his ultimate goal is for our good and his glory. Would you agree that sometimes in order for us to grow and mature, we have to go through difficulties? It's more appropriate to say that facing challenging situations can help you grow. The old the old adage, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. But, but sometimes wrong, but sometimes things kill you. But what here's the thing though, and here's the question ask is what if God's ultimate purpose was for you to die unjustifiable death? And referencing his son Jesus, who is both God and man, he's a self-limited God into the form of a human man. That would seem wrong, immoral unjust. Some of my first contradictions didn't come from a benevolent God performing objectionable acts in scripture. It came from the existence of evil in the world today. This is, it, it has a name. It's called theodicies, where apologists and theologians try to contend with the problem of evil. If the God is all-powerful, benevolent, and all-knowing, yet he allows evil to exist, something has to go. We cannot will things the way that a supreme sovereign creator could. I cannot force someone to do something based upon the fact that I don't know all things. I can't determine the outcome of every decision or indecision someone makes and how to respond to that appropriately. Well, then we're still back to the original problem of you must then demonstrate or be capable of demonstrating God's existence. And another bigger problem is if you could demonstrate God's existence, as he has written in the Bible or in any new form that he would appear today, if you were capable of doing that, you have an entirely separate problem of proving that he is worthy of worship. A common apologetic argument, you, you've heard the teleological argument, is the proper name for the argument from fine-tuning. A component of the argument from fine-tuning is that the universe can't exist from nothing, right? Something cannot come out of nothing. The uncaused cause. Nothing cannot come from nothing. It has to no, come something from something. Yeah. From. We couldn't understand and fathom what it would be like to have something infinite, to have something that would never go away. Because as humans, we know there has to be finality. We're built that way. We can imagine what something eternal could be like, but we can't live it out. And that's why it's difficult for us to understand how God works because we don't have the faculty to be able to do it. That's a point of contention because that limits our own ability to understand God fully so that I know no matter what discussion, whether we're talking about Exodus and I don't have in the body of research in front of me, there's enough research preponderance of truth to know that it actually happened. It's not faith independent of revealed truth and evidence in nature that has to be discovered and searched out. Doubting Thomas, right? I'm not going to even believe all the witnesses here that have spent time with Jesus. I need to put my finger in his flesh in the nail marks of his hands. Is it demonstrable though? Now, here's the thing, we found Dead Sea Scrolls, right? Many people believed that the evidence only went so far and that pushed the dating back not, even further. I'm not saying we'll never find anything, but so far we haven't found enough to convince me personally. Closing comment. If you were to be convinced, if, like say, what, what would you need to be convinced and how would that inform the way that you live your life out with that revelation and truth? What I would need to be convinced is evidence beyond doubt. This is where a lot of apologists who try to debate maybe natural law don't understand what it means for something to be proven in a scientific sense. We have in 
laboratory settings recreated to the best of our knowledge uh, young earth conditions 4.5 billion years ago the earth was a molten mess and then several billion years later you develop seas and chemical geysers this is all again i use the word theoretical but it's theoretical in the sense that it is the best standing theory as we understand it beyond a reasonable doubt what we know is that we can spontaneously produce amino acid formation in a laboratory setting and given sufficient time it is reasonable to assume that they would eventually coalesce in a way that produces a genome. That is reasonable by the standard that we exist. We, we do know that life came into being because we are alive so far as we can tell. And it is good for a simple reason. It's the teleological argument, life by design. It suggests that intelligent design is a possible method of biological progression. I'm, I'm not going to be overly reductive to that point. There is a well-understood body of science that proposes different ways by which life may have spontaneously generated. And I leave that to evolutionary biologists to discuss because it is complex, but it's not contingent on God either. We do we do actually have to ramp things down, but I, did, mm -hmm. I, I wanted to give you an opportunity to share any resources that you have for people listening um, so that if they wanted to learn more about the resources you brought up. I cited two authors earlier. I cited um, Jean-Paul Sartre and Albert Camus. And they're, and they're both well-known authors. They've, they're both French authors who wrote in the 20th century about uh, different methods of thinking. Um, they're well-respected and well-studied authors, but read anything that you can. If you are someone who is, I'm not going to say skeptical of their own belief, but want to find some form of affirmation in what you believe, read what you want. Read something that you are familiar with and then read things that you may not otherwise consider to be true. My intention in engaging with this discussion was that I wanted to provide a sense that there are other methods of thinking, that people can have reasonable doubt of God, can live moral existences without a creator God, without an objective God, that even objective morality in some sense can be defined without a higher power. Empathically, if you have empathy with another person, there would be things that you would not commit upon them simply because you can empathize with them. That's what I meant at the very beginning talking about religion emerging from morality as opposed to morality being contingent upon religion. All right, man. Well, I appreciate you having on the podcast. Definitely have to have you come back again. And um, I really enjoyed this conversation. I uh, hope this was stimulating engagement for you as well. We want to thank our listeners for your engagement in the show, and we want to encourage you to please share this episode with like-minded peers in your sphere of influence. If you're a student or campus minister in the Raleigh-Durham, North Carolina area, and you want to be a guest in the show, please reach out through our website at forcampus.org contact and provide your information so that we can set up a time to facilitate broader discussions and engagement. We want to thank you again, and we hope to see you next time here at Solomon's Not Podcast, an extension of forcampus.org's ministry and related partners. Thank you.